welcome to the Focal Therapy Clinic. My name is Claire Delmar, and in this audio series, I'm going to introduce you to some issues facing men diagnosed with prostate cancer that are little known, less understood, and almost never talked about. Earlier this year, prostate cancer was acknowledged as the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the UK. And with this somber fact comes a multitude of challenges and opportunities. In the fifth of our series, I'm speaking with Perry Letcher, a recent patient at the Focal Therapy Clinic who was diagnosed with early stage prostate cancer in 2018 and spent a year on active surveillance before having his prostate cancer treated with focal therapy earlier this year. Perry, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome, Claire. Great, great to be here and, and uh, privileged to be doing this. Before we launch in, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and, and your quality of life at the time of your diagnosis. I do think I'm an incredibly fortunate uh, person on, on very many levels. I'm, I'm happily married. I've got three grown-up children who have all left the nest. So, uh, you know, my wife and I live a fairly idyllic life down in Livingston. Like everyone in, in the world, I've had my ups and downs, I guess. In, in 2010, I recognized that I was an alcoholic and fortunately got a lot of help on that front and have been sober ever since. So I guess this has a slight bearing just in terms of the mental side of this because sobriety is probably now the most important thing in my life. Basically, because if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have anything else. I wouldn't have my wife, I wouldn't have the children in my life and, and so forth. So I, I guard that very jealously. I was also fortunate that I owned and ran pretty successfully a little business in, in Lymington. And five years ago in 2015, I sold that business and retired at the, the ripe old age of 53. And it enabled me to, I've loved every minute of retirement. And, and it's enabled me to do all the things that I wanted to do over the previous 25 years and didn't really have time for. I'm an active sportsman. I love my cycling. I love my fishing. I love my running. I love my swimming. So I have a really great life. Yeah, it sounds it. Sounds it. So what, what happened when you were initially diagnosed with prostate cancer? Well, in early 2018, I noticed that I got changes in urinary habits and I was getting up in the night pee a lot more frequently than I had been before. And with prostate cancer in the news and everything else, I tootled off to see my GP. That in turn led to a blood test of PSA and, and that was a little bit elevated. And Perry, when you say that was elevated, was that it relative to a, a, a previous test or, or a benchmark? Yeah, memory tells me it was about 4.6, which mm -hmm. isn't particularly high, but it's in the area where they like to just make further investigations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things where once you get onto that train, you can't really get off. It's quite a problematical thing in a way, because it is difficult to know how to respond to these things. The National Health Service, which I, when I retired, I, I gave up all my health uh, insurance and, and everything else because we weren't mm -hmm. massively wealthy. So, so I was in the NHS and, and I take my hat off to the NHS because I think they do an absolutely superb job in very challenging conditions. My issue with them is, isn't so much what they do as the way they communicate it. Mm -hmm. uh, and on a number of occasions, I've had them over-promising on timing of things. So um, walk us through a little bit about what, what happened so yeah, we can get a sense of what this means. I, I was then told, actually, that you know, it was a little bit high. DRE seemed to be normal. And so they said, you know, we'll, we'll do another PSA in, I think it was four weeks later. And I had that PSA, and that was further elevated. 
so the GP then referred me to a urologist. Mm -hmm. And of course, suddenly you're into fast tracking on 14 day response for cancer, which is, is quite scary when that happens. And I went off and saw one of the team at uh, Southampton on the NHS who said, you know, this is what we will do. And we'll do an MRI and a biopsy, and both will be done within four weeks. Very promptly after that, you'll have results, and we'll be able to tell you exactly what's going on. And that was fine, but it, it then transpired that actually the timing was not as advertised, if you like. So, the, so four weeks turned into what? Well, four weeks, I was then suddenly told before I had the MRI that the MRI would be booked in about four weeks that depending on the results of the MRI, they would then book in the biopsy, but that mm. would be another four weeks after that. So suddenly the time frame that I'd originally been told and accepted was, was moving out very rapidly. And at that stage, because I had things in my diary and I wanted to go abroad to cycle and one thing or another, I thought, actually, let's do this investigation privately. Okay. And I said, well, what, happen what happens if I go into the private sector? What will it cost me to have a biopsy and an MRI? And that's what I did. I had those done privately. And as a result of those, I was diagnosed with low-volume prostate cancer. Okay. Uh, I was told that I was a very good candidate for active surveillance. Okay. And how did you feel about that? At the time, I was relieved because I had been worried that I had a life-threatening illness. Sure, sure. And I was suddenly told, actually, this isn't, in your case, a life-threatening illness. This is a low-grade, low-volume tumour, and a lot of people have this. You're a bit too young in some respects to be getting this, and it is something we need to keep an eye on. And, and at the time, you know, when I was told active surveillance, that seemed perfectly logical and I was perfectly happy about it. Okay. And I think one of the big issues with this is that one's perception changes over time, one's feelings change over time. Yeah, interesting. And I think that it's very easy for the NHS to say, yeah, you know, he's on active surveillance and that's okay and we'll just leave it, not realising that that person can have massive changes in in their own feelings about how it goes. So, so let me get this clear. When you were put on active surveillance, and as you've described really, really well and explicitly how you felt initially, and then was there a, a program for the active surveillance, a program of visits for either scans or, or other, other diagnostics? One of the issues is that the biopsy I've had, which was a transrectal, upset me physically. Okay. With the result that three times I ended up back in the hospital to check for sepsis, which they said I hadn't got, but I'd got terrible flu-type symptoms, mm. and, and I hadn't got this sepsis. They did a couple of blood tests and, and one thing or another. But I was wiped out for about two months by this mm -hmm. biopsy. And, of course, that did not leave me feeling anything other than terrified at the prospects of getting a biopsy. But my consultant said, well, don't worry, because this will be monitored. You know, we'll do, in six months' time, we'll do another PSA. If that's okay, we'll leave it another six months. In 12 months' time, we'll do an MRI. So we won't be biopsying, and hopefully we'll be able to do this active surveillance just on, on MRI and, and 
PSA for a while. So, so that left me reassured because I was thinking, actually, if I end up having to have a biopsy every year and it wipes me out for two months, I'm going to mm-hmm. be... So, so, of course, having paid for the um, initial consultations and thinking I was going on to active surveillance, which would be probably an MRI every year for the mm-hmm. rest of my natural, I thought, well, actually... Uh, I might as well go and get that done on the NHS. So I went back into the NHS. And again, as far as I was aware at that time, and it may be that I'd misinterpreted it or anything else, being on active surveillance meant that I was told that at any stage I wished to come off active surveillance, I could, that the cancer could be treated with radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy, but that actually that would be a very high risk thing to do with a cancer that appeared to be relatively stable mm-hmm. and pretty insignificant, which might do nothing for quite a long time mm-hmm. or indeed forever. You know, I mean, the reality is, and yes, prostate cancer kills far too many people, but more people die with it. Yeah, from it. we hear that all the time. Yeah. Uh, the issue, of course, is I was quite young. But also being quite young, still enjoying an active sex life, not wanting the the prospect of something interfering with that or indeed with uh, incontinence, was pretty bleak. Statistics for those two procedures left me pretty frightened. And and surveillance seemed like the only sensible option. So we tutored along like that for a bit over a year, I suppose, because September. 2019, I had an MRI on the NHS. And again, we had the issue of over-promising and under-delivering. And I mean, I was in sales as a background. And I can tell you one thing, if you want a happy customer or a happy client, under-promise and over-deliver. If you tell someone when they are having an MRI that they'll get the results in about a week, after seven days, they will start worrying. If you tell them that they'll get the results in 14 days and you provide them in 13, they're perfectly happy. And time and again, I think this is, you know, and I think it's, it's the one thing that I think the NHS could actually up its game on remarkably cheaply is, is to not overpromise. So was this making you more anxious, you know, the waiting game? So I, had this, bit... well, I had this MRI. I was expecting the results in a week because that was what I'd been told when I had them. I then phoned up the urology uh, clinic in Southampton on the NHS and was told, no, there's no way we can have them there. It'll be two weeks. I phoned them after two weeks and they said, oh, yes, well, of course, um, I don't know whether they've come in yet, but in any event, the multidisciplinary team would have to review them before we could do anything and say anything. And after three weeks, I was climbing the walls. Okay. It's it's the straight reality of the situation. Um, And I was fully aware that it was affecting my mental sobriety. And, you know, my mind can take me into some fairly dark places. Um, mm. I found the luckiest man on the planet sometimes, and, and, and I, I truly believe that because when I was in active alcoholism, my mind took me some very, very dark places to the point where, you know, I, I was seriously contemplating ending everything. Wow. So, I mean, interestingly, um, you've, you've sort of, you know, been there before, and, and, and even feeling this anxiety in this case was probably, you know, you'd be able to fight it more than most. The other interesting thing, actually, because I spend quite a lot of my time 
trying to help other people in the same unfortunate situation that I was in. And as a result of which, I know a lot of alcoholics who are in, in recovery and, and some who aren't. And then a number of them who had prostate cancer. I don't know any of them who've survived more than two years on active surveillance. You know, we're not well suited to it. I think, I think that probably applies to a huge cross-section of the planet as well. I don't think it's just, just us folks who, who are like that. But I think that it is the anxiety levels become cumulative. There were complications because one of my MRIs had been done on the private sector and one on the NHS. For one reason or another, the multidisciplinary team didn't get to meet. No one looked at the two things side by side. Mm -hmm. I left messages with them saying, actually, I'm not happy on active surveillance. I can't cope with this. What are the other alternatives? And I said to Elaine, do I consider a radical prostatectomy? And, mm -hmm. and a 50% chance, Elaine being my wife, that you know, I could end up with erectile dysfunction. And, and, but do I take that chance? in order to safeguard my sobriety and my sanity, because this is not, I can't go on living with this. So how did you then learn about focal therapy? I was sending yet another email to somebody, and I spell-checked surveillance. Okay. Google. And it came up with active surveillance on the Google search. And the first thing there, because somebody at the local centre is fairly good at search engine optimization, if, if I were religious, I'd say that something somewhere pointed me in the right direction. Okay. And the next thing I found is I was reading something that says, you know, are you happy on active surveillance? Yeah. Within two hours, I had filled in the online questionnaire, and it wasn't. So very long before I got a call back from Brian. Mm-hmm. Yep, the patient advocate. Uh -huh. I'd already read the whole of the website from one end to the other. And he just confirmed what, what was on the website, basically, which is that actually I'd, I'd, I had appreciated that there were other alternatives. I had thought that they were still in the experimental stage because that was... That was the impression I got from, from, I guess, partly the press, but also maybe from the NHS. I really don't know. So, so Perry, let me, let me just ask you, at this stage, had you heard of focal therapy before? Yes, I had, effectively. I mean, I've, I've heard of it as high-intensity ultrasound. But, mm -hmm. um, but my understanding, and I guess it may, be that, it may be that I had heard something about it way back in early 2018 when I was first diagnosed, because I think I read something in a newspaper saying they were doing trials in Bristol. But had you ever been told about it by any of your clinicians? Not to the best of my knowledge. Hmm. And, and, and so the first thing I did was having arranged to see Tim. So this is Tim, Tim Dutteridge yeah, at Southampton. Yeah, at Southampton. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, this was going to be private. Uh, this was out of and self-funded private, you know, this wasn't an insurance thing. This, this was, you know, maybe retired and have, have sold a business, but actually part of that deal was that my pension was going to hopefully have to last a very long time. So, yeah. so this was not inconsiderable sums of money, but equally, you know, the first wealth is health. Sure. And, and if you haven't got your health, you haven't got anything. So we thought, you know, well, actually, this is something we can 
we can do. And, and you know, Brian was totally upfront about the cost of it uh, uh, and everything else. But I thought, well, actually, you know, I do need to just find out from the NHS whether it's okay to take this course of action. So and you went then, back to your NHS consultant? Well, yeah, but of course, the, the, the timing issue on this was, as always, that you ping off an email to the NHS and you get a response two weeks later. Yeah, yeah. And if your email is saying, have you got any, you know, I'm seriously considering having vocal therapy. Have you got any um, concerns, concerns about that? Mm-hmm. Are you happy about that? First of all, my consultant phoned while I was out and spoke to my wife and terrified her, actually. I mean, said, you know, do you realize this could make your husband impotent and you might have a cycle again and, uh, and all sorts of other stuff? So she was in tears and, and terrified. Hmm. I finally got hold of him and said, okay, well, fine. So what are we going to do? Would you rather I had a radical prostatectomy on the NHS or radiotherapy on the NHS? or that I had high food. He said, I'd rather you stayed on active surveillance. I said, no, you don't get it. That well, I mean, no it's like you talk about being between a rock and a hard place. That this, seems to be for a lot no, of men, you know. you know. This is no longer an option. Mm. I know it's not a service that you provide uh, in your private clinic, um, but obviously I was seeing him on the NHS. But actually, it's not about staying on active surveillance. You may feel that that is the right course mm-hmm. by then i had already seen tim tim was the only person who actually looked at both mris side by side mm-hmm. this is the one and, done privately and the one done by the nhs yeah. mm-hmm. because by then the psa had gone off again and tim said you know you can see it here look it, it has changed no it, it hasn't gone outside the prostate no it's not a, a, a massive high level issue that needs urgent attention mm-hmm. but it isn't totally stable either and to me it was an absolute no-brainer and that's why I said to the original consultant look you know it's not about active surveillance or high food or radical prostatectomy or radiotherapy mm-hmm. because active surveillance is no longer something that I am prepared to put up with. Yeah. He said, well, actually, uh, you know, under, under those circumstances, then you probably should be looking at, at, at high food. Wow. So, so they did concede that, but yet we're not able to offer it to you on the NHS. And, and left me feeling somehow that I've failed. How so? Because... You know, someone says, this is my recommendation. And your mind is saying, but actually I'm not mentally strong enough to put up with that. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, were, you, were, you felt that, you know, you were recommended after surveillance, but because you weren't comfortable with it, you were somehow deficient. Yeah. Mm. Not, a good, yeah. not a good thing to, to feel. And it left me feeling upset, but also... I needed to feel that I had at least done everything possible. Yeah. Without, no, absolutely. Without taking the enormous risks of radical prostatectomy and without hopefully prejudicing that course of action in the future. Yeah. 
which of course one of the problems with radiotherapy of course is is, is that that can make it difficult very much more difficult to do a radical prostatectomy later yes high food doesn't make it any easier either mm. <laughs> but, mm. but it is still possible so so when did you and actually undergo the high food treatment so i had the high food treatments on the 5th of december at the spa and with I mean, Tim Dudridge. With, with Tim Dudridge. Mm -hmm. And the rest has been joyful and happy. Mm, that's that's, <laughs> and, um, that's know, an incredibly it, positive thing to hear. Well, and also, um, actually, I, since you and I last spoke, I've had a further PSA and it's, it's, it's down even further. So, so That's very good news. You know, the, the, the news is all good. But even if the news weren't good, I would still feel that at least I had done what I could. Mm -hmm. and, not, and you took ownership of, of your yeah, own health. And not played wait and see mm -hmm. in a world where, and, and again, this is this was pre-COVID, this was, was before a lot of other things, but I mean, and, and how lucky was I on the timing on that? Because mm -hmm. it, was, it could all have been more difficult, although actually Southampton has been remarkable in... in, in yes, you know, we have continued to provide treatments there. But even if this doesn't have the ending that I would like it to, which is just, you know, not particularly frequent PSA tests, and, 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 and I'm, I will be having an MRI at the end of the year, and you can say, well, what's the difference between that and active surveillance? Because mm -hmm. actually, you're doing pretty much the same thing. And the difference is that with luck, we've killed the cancer. Right. So it gives and you that yeah, feeling of confidence. I do not feel like a cancer sufferer. That's very interesting. So it's changed your, your whole mental outlook. Absolutely. It, mm. It's totally changed my mental health. Look, so you've gone from being a permanent patient to being someone who's cured. Yeah. Mm. Very important. And, 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 you know, that was the best money that I've spent. Hmm. Perry, that's I, I, incredibly, it's an incredibly um, inspiring story. And, you know, uh, your honesty um, and eloquence are, are uh, remarkable. So uh, I really want to thank you for, for the, sharing those insights. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. You're very welcome, Claire. And as I say, I, I still say I'm the luckiest man around. <laughs> it's contagious. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about focal therapy and engage with patients who have chosen to undergo focal therapy instead of active surveillance, please visit our website at www.thefocaltherapyclinic.co.uk. And for me, Claire Delmar, see you next time. <laughs>